verse 25 to the end of the chapter. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us pray and ask God's blessing on his word. O Lord, we are by nature empty vessels needing to be filled, and so we pray that you will fill us with your word and spirit that the word may have great effect as the spirit has great effect. And as the spirit fills us, may we have the truth and the truth set us free in our souls from that bondage of sin which besets so many. Let us fly, as it were, on the wings of faith to the place where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this is the Upper Room uh, Discourse conclusion, and it's really been a discourse in many respects upon the ordinary Christian life. For all of the extraordinary statements that have been made, whether about the work of the Spirit, about the nature of Christian living, you would think that with such a detailed discourse on the work of the Holy Spirit that uh, you might see lots of emphasis for Christians upon how we will perform signs and wonders and so forth. But actually, what you find is something most remarkable. Instead of the work of the Spirit enabling us to go around doing signs and wonders, the work of the Spirit is really the work of Christ continuing in our daily lives as we live in obedience to His commandments. You can see that in chapter 16, chapter 15, and 14, Christ emphasizes over and over again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the Father will come to him and we will take up our residence with him. He also makes the point that if you receive the Spirit, you will have the opposition of the world. And if you receive the Spirit, you will also abide in Christ and you will produce fruit in keeping with repentance Everything about what Christ is saying here is on the one hand extraordinary because of the revelation he is disclosing to his disciples, but on the other hand it's quite ordinary in the sense that everyone sitting here should find themselves described in these few chapters. 
There is not a sort of section where you say, well, this is for a very special type of Christian. Uh, I am but a lowly servant. Uh, I will just take the uh, leftovers of uh, this book or that. No, John is speaking to us about the nature of the Christian life. And what you find is that Jesus has been clear, but he does acknowledge that in their temporary state where things are not as clear to them because this is pre-resurrection context, he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. And it's a hard word to try and navigate, but it basically means that there has been a lot of obscurity to these disciples, not necessarily because of everything that Christ is saying, though it is sort of like an explosion of truth happening, but also because they are in a state whereby they are confused, they are fearful, they are perplexed, and they don't know why He is speaking the way He is. So, I have said these things to you in an obscure way, but things will be made clearer. And we we understand this to some extent, uh, don't we? Um, My... uh, way of uh, communicating with various people uh, changes. Some of us uh, text, and text can be very curt, and you just say something, and then you uh, put a question mark or what. Somebody texted me yesterday. He's a, a principal. He's a East Indian friend of mine, a principal at a Surrey school, and uh, he texted, hi, mate, and that was it. And he doesn't talk like that. Uh, he doesn't call me mate ever. My British friends will say, hi, mate, but this gentleman, no. So I put a question mark, you know, what on earth is going on? And he later uh, revealed to me, oh, it must have uh, been one of those talk to texts. And who knows, someone else might have said hi, mate, to him. But the point was, texts is uh, not always clear. Uh, But later that night, actually, as I had uh, quite a busy day, I got home and finally was able to get into bed and put my pajamas on and sit back and I was trying to get my son a ride to church from North Vancouver and I had called Doug Jeffers and uh, he didn't answer because he doesn't live with his phone evidently and uh, answer whenever the pastor calls. But Doug decided to take things to the next level. He FaceTimed me, you know, for maximum clarity of discourse. I am lying in my bed. My t-shirt was still off and only my pajama pants were on. I'm just settling in after a very long and successful day, uh, saving the world from various ills and problems. And Doug wants to FaceTime me. And I think the FaceTime led to a lot of clarity, did it not? Uh, Did he end up bringing my son to church? No, he was uh, too late to the game and Sam had that distinction and uh, thank you. Uh, for bringing him safely. Uh, But the point was that uh, there are times in our communication where things are obscure, they're not clear, and then there are other times where everything is very clear. And what you have here is obscure communication because the disciples are having to deal with truths that have never ever been uttered in the history of the world. There's a lot of grand things in the Old Testament, but what you have in the upper room discourse is literally God pouring out His heart through Jesus Christ with language that's never been uttered. And they're in a state where they are unable to hear properly because they are so fearful. But what happens at the resurrection? Things become a lot clearer. 
In Luke 24, they said, Did not our hearts burn as He opened up the Scriptures and declared all that Moses and the prophets had said concerning Jesus Christ? Things became clear only after the resurrection. Now, Jesus makes an important point to them about the value of what He is disclosing to them. In verse 26, He says, In that day... You will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now, you mustn't understand that Jesus is negating or denying his intercessory role in heaven. What he's saying is something that has to do with the fact that once these disciples in the first century put their faith in Jesus Christ, they have direct access to the Father. Now, before this point in time, it was practically unheard of disciples or God's people anywhere calling upon God as Father in prayer. That was something that Christ disclosed as a new privilege to these disciples at this point. It wasn't as though Jesus came along and said, Our Father, and they thought, Oh, this is perfectly normal. We've always been doing this. This was new. And He is saying that because of Me, you can actually go directly to the Father. You do not need to say, as some do, oh, uh, could you put in a, a good word for me? You want someone to do something for you? You know somebody has a good relationship with them? You don't have a good relationship with the person who can do something for you, but you do with the person who has a good relationship with that person. So what do you do? You say, can you help me out here? Can you call them? Can you do this? And we, we do that quite a bit, don't we? Jesus is saying, you do not need to ask me to put in a good word for you. You can actually go to the Father. And when he says you can go to the Father and call upon him as Father, this is a revolutionary statement. Because if you look at prayers in the Old Testament, you do not see the psalmists saying, Father, Father. Father. You don't see in the prophets them saying, Father, Father, Father. You don't because that is a unique privilege afforded to Jesus Christ that He then shares with His disciples. There may be a sense in which the intimacy of your privilege with God the Father is something that was almost unthinkable for Old Testament saints who were saved in the same way that we are, but still unthinkable with the way in which you can approach God. Now, as Jesus unfolds this, He explains something very important. He says, for, this is why you can go to the Father directly, for the Father Himself, not just me, but the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. What is it that pleases the Father most about us as Christians? What is it about us that pleases the Father most? It is that we love His Son. Nothing makes the Father more pleased in each and every one of us sitting here today than the fact that we love His Son. Because when we love Jesus Christ, we are doing the very thing that the Father has always done for all eternity. And when you get to the love of Christ, you can get no higher. The Father can't say there's any greater privilege for Himself than to love His Son. That is the maximum privilege for the Father. So when you join in the Father in loving the Son, you are most like God. 
You are most like God when you love His Son. And you are also most like the Son when you love the Father. You need to think about that. Before you think about your obedience to commandments, before you think about the things you should or should not do, you need to understand that what pleases God most about you is that you love His Son. And what pleases the Son most about you is that you love the Father. And that the Spirit is the bond that brings you into that union with the Father and the Son. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can see why this is like a nuclear detonation of truth that is being unloaded upon the disciples. But notice something else. Jesus is not just, I think if you look at these verses already, we have uh, copious amounts of truth being uh, offered to. But in verse 28, he gives a, board, a sort of summary statement of everything that we can know about Christ. I came from the Father. And when you get to that point, you can't go back any farther. I came from the Father. I have come into the world. And everything that we know about Christ is based upon the fact that He has come from the Father. He has come into the world. And now, everything that we can know about Christ in the future will be based upon the fact that He has gone back to the Father. In Philippians 2, you have a commentary upon this verse. So verse 28 is a commentary found in Philippians 2, 5-11, to where Paul has the high-low-high movement. I've spoken to you in the past about this, but the high-low-high movement is that being in very nature God, high, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And we find that he what? Becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. That's the low movement. I have come into the world and now I am leaving the world going to the Father. Therefore, He has given them the name that is above every name. High, low, high. Now, the Puritans sometimes had these sort of imaginary conversations to display biblical truth. They weren't literal conversations that happened between the Father and the Son, but they would come up with these imaginary conversations to help you sort of with your sanctified imagination grip a little bit as to what we are talking about. And I could picture the Father saying, you know, I'm sending you into the world and it's, it's, it's not pretty down there. It's really not pretty. Where you are coming from and where you are going, this is a massive fall, as it were. And we could ask ourselves the question, could the Father say to Jesus, it will be fine? Could the Father say to Jesus, it will be fine? And on the one hand, no. On the one hand, no. If you think about the world into which Jesus came, it would not be fine. He would be rejected. Rejected by His people. Rejected by His family. He would have to be taken into Egypt, a place where Israel's enemies had always been, and yet that would be safer for him than in Israel because he was not only rejected by his people, but by Herod. He would experience hatred. He would experience hunger as he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He would experience thirst upon the cross when he says, I thirst. He would distress himself over the vexation of the unbelief of even his own disciples. He would not only 
experience rejection and vexation and temptation and hatred and sorrow and despair, he would also experience a horrible, horrible death. Will everything be fine? No. You are going into the world and you are going to become a curse because cursed is anyone who is hanged upon a tree. But would everything be fine? On the other hand, yes. Because Jesus could say, I always do the things that please the Father. Because He knew He was doing the Father's will, He knew He would be fine. I have come from the Father and I have come into this world where things will not be fine, but now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Ultimately, everything will be fine because of where I have come from and where I am going. Now the disciples respond to this. After He has said this, and indeed as we've seen, this is jam-packed with truth, they say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using obscure, uh, difficult language for us. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you have come from God. D.A. Carson makes the point in his commentary, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. In other words, what he's saying is, these disciples confess that Jesus knows all things. They confess that He has come from God and has authority from God. They are confessing that they can trust everything that He has said to them. And then they find out shortly thereafter this grand confession that perhaps we should all show a little bit of humility when it comes to our confidence in our spiritual ability to discern and understand God's will. It seems to me that we can confess much better theology than what we actually believe and live. I can confess some very good theology. For example that God is infinitely wise and in control of all things. If I really believed that fully, would I need to worry? Do I worry? Do I have anxiety? Do I lay awake at night sometimes because I think things are going to spiral out of control? Yes. Why? Because what I actually profess to believe, I don't actually live and that, I suspect, is the same for many of you. You believe God is everywhere present. Do you live as though God were everywhere present? Do you really believe that He is looking at everything that you do? That He is able to monitor the deep recesses of your heart? Or do you live like a practical atheist at times, denying that God sees and knows all that you do? You are all first-class theologians on the one hand, and on the other hand, mere babes when it comes to actually living what you believe. The things that you have sung about already today, the things you've read about, the things you've heard about, if we could get remotely close to that, God would beam us up to heaven and say, no more, you are ready for glory. So here's the reality check in verse 31. Do you now believe? 
It's a little bit depressing, isn't it? If you go through the Gospel of John, just go through the Gospel of John and look at all the times when disciples are making claims of belief and faith and look at Christ's response. Sometimes uh, in my marriage, we have our little sayings with each other and sometimes when Barb's telling me something, uh, you know, it's top of the morning and it's like she comes in with something distressing. I'm like, okay, bad news, Barb. What's going on today? So I have bad news, Barb. Uh, I call some people Debbie Downer. And, uh, you know, there's, there's different types of phrases I have. It's just like, oh, really? But if you actually look at all of the great professions of faith and all of the claims to, yes, we believe in the Gospel of John, you will find more often than not Jesus querying it. You know how some people say, oh, uh, that person's too pessimistic. It's... it's it's actually biblical for those pessimists here. <laughs> I want you to take heart, dear pessimist. Uh, things are a lot worse than what you even think. <laughs> I do love optimists. Uh, that's why God gave me Ferd. He's not here. But the world is crashing down and burning and Ferd is smiling. Oh no, it's all going to be fine. I won't say who I phone for my reality checks, but the point is, Jesus says, do you now believe? He doesn't go, oh, this is wonderful. You finally get it. This is so, I'm just so thankful. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. And you see, while I say pessimism may be biblical, you have to make sure that your pessimism is rooted in absolute truth. Not just human fear. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. We believe that you have come from God. You know all things. Our faith is secure in you. Moments later, they will be scattered each to their own home in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And this is the remarkable thing about the Scriptures, how honest the Scriptures are by those who wrote them about their own shortcomings and failures. These are not triumphant men of faith to begin with. They are weak, cowards, ignoramuses, you name it. There's nothing whereby they go back and they say, you know, we need to do a little redacting and uh, we're going to edit this and we've got, you know, several decades on and they say, you know, look at the man I have become. You know, you see Peter becomes a, a great man and John and all the apostles eventually die for the faith. They could have easily, when writing, sort of glossed over these pathetic parts that characterize their early ministry, but they don't because there can only be one true hero of the faith to begin with. There can only be one man of true courage. There can only be one who fully understands the will of God. And in comparison to that one, we all are those who would run away and be scattered to our own homes. There is not a single person sitting here who if they were beamed back into this upper room, wouldn't also be the recipient of these words. You will be scattered. Yet, I am not alone. Such sad words, and will leave me alone, yet, I am not alone. That's the glory of 
what Christ is saying here. You will all leave me alone. Men who have professed to love me and follow me. Yet, I am not alone. Those words, maybe you are thinking, how do they relate to the cross? Yet, I am not alone. Well, very simply, you are thinking of Psalm 22. Maybe you are. Those horrifying words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet you read these words, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Which is true. And this comes down to the mystery of the cross, which was encapsulated in those beautiful words by Thomas Goodwin. God was never more pleased with His Son than when He was most angry with Him. There's a sense in which Jesus did experience the fury of the wrath of God on the cross, and yet because He was being so obedient to the Father, He was pleasing the Father. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. And so while He was in darkness, while He was in despair, behind all of that, He knew He was being obedient to death being obedient to His Father's will, and that the Father was with Him. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then He comes to the conclusion of His sermon. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have said these things, this entire discourse. And it is jam-packed. If you just go back and read this sermon in the upper room, it's, it's quite frightening to think about what was expected of these disciples and what is expected of us today. I did a conference yesterday and a guy who I know, he's a, he's a great man. His name's Richard Procy. Uh, he might even be here tonight, actually. You, you won't, I don't even need to tell you who he is. You'll find out and he went to the conference yesterday and I walk in. He's like, oh, I saw that you were preaching. I listened to your sermons. You know, I really like your sermons because they're half an hour. He goes, and they're jam-packed in half an hour. And uh, I was thinking, okay, yes, good start to the day. Uh, and uh, how he needs to then listen to them twice because they're jam-packed in half an hour. And then I'm thinking, yes, this is a very good start to the day, Mark. Well done. I haven't even begun to preach. And... Uh, and then I actually thought about what I say in half an hour, and then I read what you can read in a few minutes here. And I think, no, 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 no. This guy's crazy, and you are not jam-packed. This is jam-packed. He is stating things in a few minutes of reading what could take eternity to unpack. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Benjamin Franklin said, even peace may be purchased at too high a cost. And you see, that's actually the truth of the Gospel. Peace has been purchased at too high a cost. As Anselm said, it was a cost so great that only God could pay it, and yet it was a cost that man had to pay, that man had to pay it. Hence the God-man. Peace may be purchased at too high a cost. Jesus Christ has made peace with us by His death. And in me, 
you may have peace. That is to say, outside of Christ, there is no such thing as peace. The world cries, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Only Jesus can give you peace. Notice what the world offers. In the world, when you're united to the world, we talk about union with Christ, but if you're united to the world, you will have tribulation. What does the world offer? Tribulation. What does Christ offer? Peace. Yes, you will have, because you live in this world, tribulation. You will have persecution. You will have distress. But in Christ, you will have peace. What can the world do to you? Think about what the world can really do to you that Christ's peace cannot take care of. What could the world do to you today that would overcome the peace that Christ has given you? Tell me. What's the worst the world could do? The world could perhaps stone you, take your life. What does the peace of Christ offer you? The same peace that Stephen, becoming like an angel, to be with Christ is better by far. The world would be doing you a favor in a sense from a certain perspective. What can the world do to you that Christ's peace cannot take care of? And the answer is nothing. In me, you have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Edward in King Henry VI, there's a quote, and if you know this quote, you're a genius. But there's a quote, and either victory or a grave. And I thought about that. And either victory or a grave. And then I thought about these words of Christ. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He has just told His disciples, many of whom are still consumed with an earthly kingdom, many of whom are concerned that the Messiah will overthrow the Romans. He is saying, take heart, I have overcome the world. And what will happen moments later? From their perspective? the world will overcome Christ. He's just done this wonderful long sermon. Their hearts are warmed. This is fantastic stuff. And then he finalizes his sermon by saying, don't worry, I have overcome the world. And moments later, he's going to be arrested. And after that, crucified. Can you imagine these words? What an absolute sham they would have been to the disciples as they heard. Oh, our Messiah is saying great things. He's overcome the world and now he can't even carry a cross. Either victory or a grave. And Jesus is saying, actually, it will be victory through the grave. That you will have all things made plain to you when I march out of that grave and you see me with those scars in my hands and on my side and you will with Thomas say, my Lord and my God, because victory comes through the grave. Take heart, I have overcome the world. He is conquered. He is one. And you're to take heart in that, that in Christ you have that victory. In Christ you have that peace. There is nothing in this world that can upset a Christian. You can face the world's tribulation, and you will. But ultimately, nothing can upset you to the point of despair. You will be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord, let us pray.
Oh Lord, help us to have the faith to believe the things we confess. We are great theologians on the one hand and sometimes miserable, cowardly, unbelieving theologians on the other. We pray that you will change that as we believe more and more that what Christ has said is true and that his truth does not come to us in mere words but in power through the work of the Spirit who is another Christ to us who dwells in us and will lead us back to him. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.